Greetings, comrade, and welcome to the Eastern Border. For those of you new here who came after my presidential interview, know that these uh, spontaneous news episodes are unedited because Anate has a lot of work to do. She she works as a audio person in Strasbourg, after all. And well, if I'd send her stuff all the time, then you know she can't make it exactly as as it's needed. Her next episode, by the way, is going to be an interview with um with the History of Architecture podcast. The first one I ever collaborated with back in the day, and uh, well, right now he was on to my show, and we had amazing conversations, which are definitely going to continue on on his show as well. But about the whole dam thing, yeah, that's the big issue. I thought for a while that dam might have collapsed collapsed by itself. However, the interesting part is that all of this is a bit weird. See, I blamed Russians mismanaging stuff because they had been not maintaining it and everything. The dam had been operating on an unsafe state since the events of last fall, and both sides had been shelling it, it had timers damaged and everything. At the very least, the overpasses above the dam were repeatedly destroyed. All autumn, Russian military engineers worked to restore the routes over the dam, though it's unlikely that they, their main goal was to ensure the dam's long-term safety. Then, the Russians blew up the overpasses when they retreated, which damaged the dam. Satellite photos also seem to show that the dam's condition was deteriorating over the last few months. Russian troops controlled the hydropower plant facilities, but they were clearly not using them for their intended purpose. Maintenance of these hydraulic structures was basically impossible due to ongoing battles around the plant, and there were orders that literally prohibited Russians to do any maintenance on the dam as well. And it was all, like, weird. And both sides have said that the water level in the Kakhovka Reservoir was, like, rising throughout the spring and reached critical conditions, so there was definitely a lot of tension on this thing. And, in fact, I have not seen any videos of the dam exploding. You know, we do not see this whole thing. However, the thing that I'd like to mention here is that we have two experts who who say quite similar things, to be honest. First of all, there is uh, Mikolai Kalinin, the chief engineer at Ukrohydro Project, the Ukrainian institution specializing in the design of energy facilities since, well, 100 years or so. And he says that the Kakhovka hydropower plant was designed and built to withstand a nuclear strike from the outside. Therefore, he says that any talk that a dam could somehow collapse by itself is pointless, according to him. And yeah, he states that this dam was designed to withstand a nuclear impact. The fact is, as he puts it, the gates of the several spans of the Kakhovka dam were destroyed and they let water through. About five gates were open and water was constantly flowing through them. And... When asked of how it was possible to destroy it, he says, quote, Apparently, several explosions were carried out simultaneously. Most likely the dam itself was mined, just in those spans that were open, and perhaps a little further. In addition, the HPP building itself, where hydro units are installed to generate electricity, must have been mined. What's important, mined from the inside. Because, well, as he put above, the dam was designed and built to withstand a super powerful impact from the outside. Not from the inside, though. If you plant the explosives correctly, if someone tipped you off and, you know, we know that workers of Russian energy structures work there, then you can eventually achieve what actually happened. The fact that the HPP building itself was blown up may indicate that the Russians wanted to destroy not only the dam, but also the entire HPP as an energy facility in general. And, well, that's the thing. The reason why we don't have an explosion video or something is apparently because the mines should have been laid deep in the HPP building, in the interior, before the water level. And apparently, well, Russians control the whole area. 
We also have another expert here about this whole situation, Nikolai Denisov. He's a geographer and one of the founders of the Swiss environmental nonprofit organization, ZOI. He studied the ecological consequences of the war in Donbass since 2014 and, well, destructive impacts of Russia's invasion of Ukraine's ecology. And that's the thing. Based on these reports uh, from Ukrohydrenergo, explosion cord in the engine room. This is what Denisov also says. The water, and I quote from him, will only stop flowing from the reservoir when it reaches either the Dnipro River's natural limits or the lowered level at which the dam might still operate. He added that it's unlikely that much water will be left over in Kohovka Reservoir after the flooding is done. And, well, according to Ukrohydro Energo, this could take anywhere from two to four days. This thing is that these guys also lost control over the Kohovka plant months ago, making it unclear exactly how the facility was administrated or under what conditions it was operating before Tuesday. Again, they also themselves engineered from their claim it's, it, was, it has been under Russian control. Denisov, however, states that it is hard to say who did what wrong here, but he supposes that the reservoir's water level before Tuesday's explosion was likely due more to natural conditions than mismanagement. Asked if he thinks heightened water pressure combined with Russian occupation forces' clumsy supervision might have been enough to break the dam, Denisov explained that his sources say these Soviet dams were, again, usually built to withstand substantial force, even a direct missile strike, at least in theory. There is no reason to distrust Ukro Hydro Energo's assessment that the cause was an explosion in the engine room. Quote, I'm not a military expert, but I do think this was Russia's attempt to halt the advance of Ukrainian troops. Denisov expects, you know, that water levels will rise by at least several meters. Uh, that's three feet for you Americans. Water level spikes will be lower further downstream, where the spilt area is larger, but that nuance will be lost to the locals caught in the floods, he says. Some preliminary caution calculations, however, anticipate even worse overflows. How soon residents can return home safely depends on how quickly officials can restore critical infrastructure. Since the area is located close to the front lines, it's hard to predict how combat operations could affect such restoration and, you know, <laughs> everything that's happening there. As for everyone living in the reservoir... Denisov explains that they are adapted to the reservoir-specific ecosystem, meaning that, well, many animals will not survive these floods. The dam's destruction has also disrupted the local population's water sources and irrigation systems. This will affect Crimea, since the Kokovka Reservoir supplies the North Crimean Canal, which provides water to the Crimean Peninsula. The collapse of the dam has also sparked concerns about how water shortages will impact the Zaporozhye nuclear power plant, which relies on water from the reservoir. Denisov says that water shortages resulting from the dam's destruction could make it difficult for the station to cool the temperature of its reactor. Meanwhile, Ukraine's state nuclear power company, Energoatom, reports that everything is mostly under control and the plant has access to backup water supplies for the time being. Possible alternatives for supplying uh, cooling water could involve either routing pipes and pumps to the river or intensively exploiting groundwater. Though, obviously, this is no easy feat. All in all, well, the rebuilding of the dam. Oh yeah, that um, that could be a bit wrong, a bit weird because currently we have reports that this could take up to five years if you want to rebuild the whole dam, and that would um, cost about twenty-seven million dollars, which is a lot of money. And again, like I said, well, I trust these two separate experts who state that no, it was impossible for the dam to collapse naturally. So if you read me on Twitter, yeah. I now agree that it's probably just 
Russians mining things and not even calculating anything. The fact that Russian troops were not informed about this, yeah, no one cares. Not like they care themselves about their own uh, soldiers or, or something like that. They never have and they never will either. But the dam explosion and everything, as tragic as it is, it's not the only news story. It's just among other weird situations uh, that is happening there. See, I spoke about how um, how Wagner Group is fighting the Russian army and how they're actually in conflict. And apparently, in a spliced video, this Russian officer released by Wagner Mercenaries, yeah, he said quite a few things. See, uh, his name was Lieutenant Colonel Roman Vinivitin, whose capture was previously reported by Yevgeny Prigozhin's press service. And he's released a video in which he accuses the paramilitary chief of very grotesque violations of, well, everything against the Russian army. One of the news channels that shared the video disclaims having received it from an unknown account via message requests. The footage itself suggests that in places the speaker is reading from a script or taking cues from another person. The video has also been spliced. Among other things mentioned on camera, Vinyavitian speaks about being tortured and taunted by the mercenaries who captured him and accuses Prigozhin of undermining the Russian military with his statements. Vinyavitian identifies himself as the former commander of the Russian army's 72nd Brigade. Yeah, the famous guys uh, Prigozhin had like mentioned before. He claims that the Wagner fighters stopped him while he was doing his rounds checking on his units. After an obscene confrontation, that's that I quote here, the mercenaries allegedly captured him. In his own words, quote, They kept me in a basement, tormenting me as no embedded Russian soldier would ever, to would ever torment a captured, Uc captured Ukrainian soldier. They beat me, wouldn't let me sleep, dragged me out of the basement three times a night, acting as if they were about to shoot me. Vinovitin also said that earlier footage of his interrogation by Prigozhin's mercenaries had been made under duress, alleging further cases of regular army troops being tortured by Wagner fighters. Quote, Our servicemen have been abducted and subjected to physical violence and the methods of demeaning their honor and dignity. For example, a petty officer of one of our battalions was abducted. They tortured him, kept him naked on a cold basement floor, sprayed acid and other chemicals into his eyes, which led to a temporary loss of vision. They poured gasoline over him and threatened him with a lighter. According to Vinovitian, other outrageous case took place last spring, when a Russian serviceman committed suicide after being sexually assaulted by Wagner mercenaries stationed nearby in a deliberate attempt to unman him. That is, turned him into a petuch. Uh, again, this meaning will be lost to you if you haven't read my article and or haven't listened to the previous prison culture episodes, but again, you can see how this matters to these Wagner Group soldiers who are, let's just say, well-trained in the prison culture. Criticizing Prigozhin's publicity efforts as political spin, he said that Wagner Group could not have captured Bakhmut, Solyadar, or Papasna in Ukraine if not for the coordinated support from the regular army, including the Chechen Ahmad Battalion and other formations. This, by the way, makes me think that um, the conflict between Kadyrov and Prigozhin is just going in a new stage, and um, we're seeing some bad stuff. I'll get back to this in a second. Vinovichin denies, denies Prigozhin's allegations that his brigade had mined the back of Wagner Group's positions, calling him a product of the Prigozhin's PR team's inflamed imaginations. Now, the thing about Wagner Group and Kadyrov and, and, and everything is that, uh, yeah, even Russian Z channels have noticed this. Everyone is, like, accusing everyone else of being a traitor, and... And, well, our good old buddy Girkin, 
he's angry about the whole situation and his friends are also stating that um, yeah, Smuta, or Time of Troubles in a way, have begun once again. In a weird situation and twist of fate, yeah, they kind of are. Except it's just the beginning of all the stages. And like I said, the internal fighting and their own internal struggles are quite inevitable, to be honest. Because this is all just going a bit crazy. Meanwhile, we have another report of my friends in the Wagner Group. You see, Radio Liberty reports that Wagner Group rents offices all over Russia to quietly dispense cash to mercenaries and their families. Relatives of former prisoners who were killed in Ukraine while fighting with Wagner Group, explained the publication Severyali, which is a Radio Liberty project, by the way, how the military cartel organizes payments to its fighters and their relatives. Always fun to see. They say that Wagner Group representatives pay out millions of rubles in cash at rented offices in Russia's major cities like St. Petersburg and Novosibirsk, as well as at the Wagner base in the Krasnodar region. A company called Slusba 200, Service 200, organizes funerals for killed Wagner mercenaries and handles Wagner Group payments. The service has a WhatsApp number which relatives can use to find out the status of their fighters. Alena, a Norilsk resident, used Service 200 when she was searching for her brother. It asked her to confirm her identity by sending a photo of her passport and then within five minutes told her that, that her brother had been killed. After her brother's funeral, Wagner Group asked Alyona for his burial certificate and then directed her to the closest Wagner compensation center in Novosibirsk. Alyona spent about eight hours in line at the Novosibirsk office. Quote, The process is not fast. You write out a receipt, they take your picture, people count out money from these cash bottles, she explained. Alyona's family received a six-month six pension of 660,100 uh, 660, rubles. Nah, sorry. 660,000 rubles, around $8,000 for her brother. 100,000 rubles, $1,220 in funeral money, and 5 million rubles as a compensation for the death of a relative. Over $60,000. I wish someone sent me $60,000, but yay. Wagner employees recommended that Alyona did not deposit the money in a bank account. Quote, Before we left, they gave us instructions. Don't load the money on a card and don't put it in the checking account. You can put it in the safe deposit box. Or you can put 100,000 rubles, ah, again, $1,200, on cards from different banks. That's it. Be quiet about this money, she said. Wagner representatives also apparently issue medals to relatives when its fighters earn them with the paramilitary structure. Wagner employees claim that the medals should come with a certificate signed by Russian President Vladimir Putin, but this, that the certificate will be given out only after the mercenaries are, quote-unquote, officially recognized as combat veterans. Some civil rally sources reported that they'd received certificates from Wagner directors about their relatives' participation in the war in Ukraine. The documents were printed on letterhand from the Petersburg League for the protection of veterans of local wars and fighters in military conflicts and, apparently, were signed by the director of the organization, Hero of the Russian Federation, Andrei Trosha. So, you know, Wagner is building up their own forces. Sadly, I do not have any information on what Kadyrov is doing, but, uh, weirdly enough, Wagner Group is mostly trying to be a functional force on a higher level, even with their prisoners and after their deaths and everything. I think this is a remainder from the old Wagner. Just shows how much money Prigozhin really has if he pays out, out such sums and does this actively in various cities. That's kind of the level of wealth that is unimaginable for normal people. But, you see, the fact that Wagner 
group takes care of their own just shows that they're taking this conflict seriously as well. And I don't mean the war in Ukraine, I mean the conflict with Kadyrov. I think Prigozhin has a plan, you know. He's not a household name at any rate, and he's on to this situation. Not sure if he's involved in the explosion of the dam, however, but he has plans, and Kadyrov has plans, and they're in active conflict, and, well, we'll see how this turns out. The Ukrainian counteroffensive is going weirdly, with the elements of surprise not exactly being there. Everyone speaks about the main assaults and everything. I will wait for some results and um, plans being put into some order and happening. There are various ways how to approach this, and I had a two-and-a-half-hour call yesterday. Yeah, by the way, sorry for you guys who were on the Discord channel at that point, because I had to pick that one up. But I don't exactly know which part of the whole thing, the whole everything really, is the main part of the assault. Ukrainian counterattack is happening, but I think they'll rather surprise us. In fact, I'm, I'm pretty sure they'll surprise us. You will see some successes in places where you don't expect, and uh, just don't, don't please hope that it's going to happen in a day. The Wagner groups and Kadyrov's uh, Chechen's conflict is just making it even more interesting, so to speak. But, uh, well, wait and see. Wait and see. We'll, we'll see that, and I'll, of course, be covering that in the future. At any rate, this is it for today. Uh, expect our new episode, which is going to be this interview about architecture, which is going to be a breather. I'm not sure if I'll make any news before that, because that episode is in editing. Probably I will. Uh, again, I'll continuously work on all this situation. But for now, and please, if you like the show, consider becoming our patron on patreon.com slash border. Or if you listen to this via our homepage, or you can just go to our homepage, theeasternborder.lv. There's a donate button there. I would be very, very happy if you'd uh, help out the show at this point. Because of uh, Dad's funeral and all this stuff, um, yeah, <laughs> lacking lacking some resources. Uh, the fact that I need to get a non-DJI FPV drone system because uh, then I could film in July together with our German colleagues from Ukraine. And we finally finalized that part. Gotta get all the information and everything going on. And if you're listening to this uh, Termits, then uh, let me know. <laughs> He's gonna drive us a bit, I hope. It's a bit of a mess, uh, anyway. But uh, in general, yeah, let's look at how this whole thing unfolds. Gitkin is, of course, extremely angry about the whole results of everything. But yeah, please support the show. I'll be covering it more in the news. Do svidaniya, And as always... Happiness is mandatory.